Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. We also cover craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com. And make sure to visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Today's guest is Kylie Reed, a recent graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, where she was the recipient of the Truman Capote Fellowship. She lives in Philadelphia. Such a Fun Age is her first novel. Kylie joined me today to talk about Such a Fun Age and how writing two-dimensional characters, people who are both good and bad, is how to make them true to life. We are here to talk about your book, Such a Fun Age. And I would like first to start off just with you telling us a little bit about the book, what it's about. Sure. Uh, The book starts on a Saturday night in September in 2015. We meet Amira Tucker. She is a 25-year-old African-American babysitter. She's a Temple University graduate, and she's at that phase in her life where she's really not sure what she wants to do. She lives in an apartment she doesn't like, but one thing she does love doing is babysitting. So Amira is babysitting three-year-old Briar Chamberlain, They're in a grocery store, they're having a good time, they're singing and dancing until a security guard and a customer, upon seeing a black woman with a white child, accuse Amira of kidnapping. Uh, Someone else pulls out their cell phone, they record it, Amira's humiliated, and Alex Chamberlain, Briar's mom, feels terrible that this happened while you know, Amira was under her care. So she tries to right the night's wrongs, but the book turns into a comedy of good intentions after that. Yes, very much. And that's one of the things that does make it so compelling because it's a very modern story. And um, it's very much about a one scene, one moment that triggers life-altering events for many people. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the babysitter is being racially profiled and is experiencing this, which I'm sure it's not the first time in her life that she has been racially profiled. But then we have a uh, upper class white woman who is, you know, trying to fix it. It just ends up being a uh, kind of a tumbleweed rolling down a hill, gathering weights, turning almost into a ballistic missile. A little bit. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who have wonderful intentions, uh, both black and white, but there's a huge emphasis on them as individuals rather than a collective society. There's always this overwhelming feeling of, okay, how can I say the perfect thing in this moment? How can I do the perfect thing with this racially charged incident? And there's little room for all right, well, why does why does this incident happen in the first place? I think a little bit too much emphasis is put on the individual by many people. Yes, absolutely. And it also brings up the question of whether or not it's performative. Right. There is that that level too. I also am really intrigued by memory and memory serves a huge role in this novel and memories that people have become self-serving. They get twisted and warped. And as I think memories do often, and they often kind of shape who we are, whether they happened like that or not. And so in writing this book, I wanted to really honor the truth of memory and not always tell the reader exactly how something happened, because I think the more important thing is how it happened for that character. So there's definitely some conflicting memories that the reader has to grapple with. 
That's wonderful. And it brings up the interesting question, too, of are our experiences shaping us and who we are or or are we rewriting our experiences to fit the image of who we think we are? That's an interesting way of putting it. I think sometimes it's both. Uh, In studying memory a little bit, uh, you know, for the most part, memories come about when a really strong reaction happens in a moment. But sometimes I think when you're telling a story and you get a big reaction from it, the feeling, that emotion of feeling accepted because you told a story also gets encoded on you in a certain way too. And certain stories we tell over and over again, they get bigger and bigger as we tell them because we want a reaction out of it. So all of those things, I think, really factor into these characters. Uh, That's fascinating. Um, I read in a interview that you gave uh, with NBC and you were talking about, as a writer myself, one of the things that I really enjoyed you bringing up towards the end of the interview, and I'm going to quote you here, you say, the characters that I enjoy the most, the author has set me up to not know how to feel about them. I think it's a bit romantic to believe that racist and homophobic individuals are those ways all of the time, which is a great way to kind of flip what we were just saying when you have someone with good intent intentions, trying to do the right thing, possibly it being performative or even just like uh, ego boost or self-cleansing in some ways. And here you're also bringing up the opposite. People that truly are racist or homophobic are acting in these ways purposefully. Are they always that way? Uh, Another quote from you, you say that you try to give each character a win, a moment Mm -hmm. they are redeemable. And I love that. Um, I think it's so true. I mean, you know, one of the cliches that we often hear as writers is that you don't want to write a mustache twirling villain. Yes, exactly. They are not compelling. So, I mean, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. Seeing both sides of all of your characters, even the ones that are, you know, not so easy to swallow. Totally. Um, I think that showing characters strengths and weaknesses just remains so much more true to who we can be as humans. When I taught undergraduate workshops at the iWriters Workshop, I had students who are not writers, which is kind of my favorite student, students who need an art credit and hope to get an A from, from an art class. And I had a lot of tendencies from my students to write these villains that were just so two-dimensional, kill and steal and say bad things and are very, very rude to people. And we talked a lot about how much scarier is it when that that horrible villain goes home and plays with his children and is really loving towards them. I think that those sides can exist really harmoniously. I remember when I was a child, uh, I lived in Tucson, Arizona, which is a very white uh, town. And I had friends who their parents loved me and they loved when I came over and they made me feel part of the family, but they would never allow their children to date or marry an African-American man. And I think that all of those, those, you know, feelings make up a human. And so I wanted to show characters that are sweet and kind and also have really terrible and harmful ways of thinking about people, because I think that that's more true to how white supremacy can exist. Absolutely. Because they're not all Adolf Hitler. No. Yeah. It's the guy that came and fixed your sink and was perfectly polite to you or the woman that smiled at you and asked about your day. But, you know, I mean, it's yeah. it's everyday people. Everyday people. Totally. And in the first scene, there is this really big uh, moment of racial bias. At the same time, 
for the remainder of the novel, Amira is struggling to get health insurance. And I think that that's another extension of racism. Why don't domestic workers have an easy time of getting health insurance as they're working sometimes much harder and longer than other professions? And so people often ask me, you know, is this a book showing that racism is getting better or worse? And I think the only way of answering it is kind of like how humans are, is I think that it evolves in different, sometimes insidious ways. And so I was hoping to show exactly how that happens with Amira. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also a very good way to actually illustrate, uh, it's, a, it's a buzzword now, but systemic racism. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually illustrating it through these everyday actions of everyday people, rather than, you know, people marching with tiki torches. You know, it's like, that's the, yeah. right. wh- while it's a horrible visual, it's also makes it easier for everyday racism to, I think, hide. I think so too. Yeah. And I have to, I mean, as a human, I'm, I'm so interested in these big socioeconomic issues, but as a reader and writer, I love the tiny little nuanced moments mm. that do so much heavy lifting and show years and years of, of history come back to one tiny moment between a woman and her babysitter. I yeah. think those moments are really fascinating. Coming up, working life without a living wage, representing race on the page through language choice and the truth that resides in fiction. This episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is sponsored by Leaner Creamer. Here at Leaner Creamer, we believe starting your day off healthy and lean with a cup of coffee and our creamer is the best way to begin a healthy new chapter. Our creamer is paleo and keto diet friendly, gluten-free, sugar-free, lactose-free. Leaner Creamer can also be used as an aid in weight loss due to the natural supplements that help boost metabolism. Visit LeanerCreamer.com now and use promo code FIRE15 to receive 15% off. So you mentioned socioeconomic issues being of interest for you. You set this book in uh, Philadelphia and partly because it has a more progressive approach to setting standards for domestic workers who on average have an income of $10,000, which you obviously cannot live on. Mm -hmm. So if you want to talk about that a little bit, because I know that you yourself had experience as a domestic worker, um, walking away from the book for a little bit, if you just talk about uh, your experiences as a domestic worker, and then also just the the plight of uh, these people that have to live on not a living wage. Absolutely. I did work as a nanny for six years and Amira Tucker, my protagonist, and I couldn't be more different when it comes to personalities, but I definitely remember not having health insurance and being having a a very, you know, mild level of panic all the time thinking, what if I get hit by a car? What if I cut myself cutting this birthday cake? That would change the course of my life and paying for it would set me back in a way that I may not come back from. I think emotional labor and domestic labor is fascinating and it goes back to a history of slavery, a history of not giving farmers and domestic workers the same rights as other people and farmers and domestic workers were mostly black and brown people in the 30s and People like Amir are still struggling with that today. But I will say one thing that is so uplifting for me to know is uh, Philadelphia is kind of leading the way along with Seattle, I believe, with a recent bill passed for Domestic Workers Bill of Rights, where 
everyone who babysits for a family for more than five hours a month is now contracted, whether they sign something or not. And things that other jobs have had for so long, like sick days and paid leave and lunch breaks and time to get off of your feet, those things will be included. There's a moment in the novel where Amira thinks, I really want to quit. And she thinks, you know, I can't just put in my two weeks notice. That's not how this works. But under the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights here in Philadelphia, that is how it works. And things like that are very encouraging. I think they're going to be hard to implement, but still encouraging nonetheless. I survived on a rather low income for a period of time in my life. And uh, you are absolutely right. It is so scary. If you don't have health insurance, those really simple things like cutting a birthday cake or, you know, driving, I, you know, you have to drive if you're lucky enough to have a car, you know, yeah, you could be injured. I mean, any of us, you know, I'm literally sitting in my office right now. There is no guarantee that the ceiling won't fall on me. I mean, it might, right? Right. You never know. (laughs) Yeah, it's a crazy thing, especially with domestic labor with children. It's this profession that you have such a small margin of error, not just for yourself, but for the child. If something happens to that child that can change your life, their family's life forever. And with such a high stakes situation, if you're lucky, you get paid $15 an hour. It's a dichotomy that doesn't make any sense. And I I hope Philadelphia leads the way in, in changing that for other women. You've had great luck right out of the door with such a fun age. Uh, Emmy-winning writer-producer Lena Waithe has snapped up the film and TV rights even before publication. Uh, Reese Witherspoon has adopted it as a book club book. It has just uh, had such a wave of enthusiasm, even pre-publication. So I know that you have gone through quite a bit of... um, training and education in order to, you uh, you were accepted into the Iowa's Writers Workshop at the University of Iowa, but you also had stumbling blocks before that. Again, I've done some reading about your experiences and you were rejected from nine schools that you applied to for your MFA. And to have this, this experience now, I would just love to know your feelings of the compare and contrast of those different ups and downs as a writer. The first time I applied to grad school, I got got those nine rejections and it was so difficult. So much of being a writer is having other jobs to support your writing habit as it's not, you know, sustainable for a bit. And it's really hard to know, okay, when do I pull the plug on this and say, this isn't for me. And so I tried again. I had the opportunity to move to Arkansas with my now husband and I worked in a coffee shop and I wrote copy for a few companies for work and wrote for a few magazines in Arkansas as I applied again. And the second time around, I was so much more grounded in what I wanted to do. And my sample was just so much stronger. And instead of, you know, oh, please let me write at your school. The second time around was, hey, I write about really big socioeconomic issues down to tiny little petty instances. Let me know if I can do that at your school. And the second time it worked out a lot better and got into nine schools. And I was so pleased to take this novel to Iowa where I completed it. But I think that rejections are part of the process. I could probably wallpaper my room with rejections, but the ones that always stand out are the good ones. Um, I've definitely had rejections that say, hey, this one almost made it. And as a writer, you're like, oh my gosh, I can, I can do this for another three months. This, this little phrase is going to carry me for a little bit. Um, and I think that's just part of the process. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. I was trying to get an agent for 10 years. And that is 
pain, you know, and it's just, you're talking about wallpapering with rejections. I mean, absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, um, you're so right about those positive rejections though, because you can have that one phrase. I remember I did get a specific rejection from an agent that I really wanted. And she said, this isn't a good fit for me at the moment because the genre was off, Mm -hmm. but she was like, you are a good writer. And I believe you will succeed. Oh and yes, there was just that one line. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, and my heart left in my chest and it was as if she had signed me, you know, I exactly. was so happy. Yeah, It's nice having writer friends in those moments too, because they're there to celebrate with you. Yes. Like, oh, wait, it wasn't like a form rejection. It wasn't a dear author letter. This is amazing. Um, keep mm-hmm. going. Those moments mm-hmm. mean more. Yeah. When someone on the inside of where you want to be is acknowledging that it's a possibility that you might get to be on the other side. That that I mean, sometimes that's all it's take. And you're you're right. I lived off of that one line compliment for three months. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how long that those will take you. Or even just you know, someone like when you're workshopping something. When I walked into the workshop with this novel, one of my friends said, uh, "Okay, I've cast the entire book. Do you want to know who should play who?" <laughs> and just her enthusiasm made me so excited about the book. And that just gives you a little boost that, that you really need at that moment. Absolutely. And it also can reinvigorate you about your own work, I think. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. When you see it from someone else's perspective, uh, workshop can be really difficult. But when everyone is getting excited and saying, oh, my gosh, at this moment, I thought she was going to do this and she did this. Um, mm-hmm. It just gives you a lot of clarity to what you've been doing in your room alone for so many hours. <laughs> That is absolutely the best way to put it. Because you do um, achieve a certain amount of uh, manuscript blindness when you're working and you're diving so deep and digging and you're getting down into the insides of it, it it loses a face. It loses sometimes that uh, the personal connection. If you're just looking at it structurally or looking at the craft aspect, sometimes you lose the human angle that you had. And when other humans are then reacting to your work and giving you that feedback and you remember why you did this. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's the best when someone says, hey, in this moment, why wouldn't she just close the door? And you're like, oh, wait, yeah, she's a human. Yes. <laughs> Why wouldn't I just have this person do the human thing? Um, and it's nice to be reminded that you need other humans to write about humans sometimes. We are easily, easily isolated just because of the nature of what we do. Mm-hmm. And I personally uh, live in a very rural area. I don't have the option of going to a coffee shop or something like that to work. And so I substitute in the schools simply so that I can be around people sometimes because you lose that connection. You can't write about people if you don't know them. I completely agree. Yeah. As you can tell, I'm in the school right now. Okay. (laughs) That's fine. Any thoughts then on the success that you've had? Because you've just had an enormous amount of pre-publication buzz and a lot of people talking this book up. And I personally am just like super excited about it. So not necessarily looking at it from a, did you ever believe that this would happen to you? But more of what is the experience like? Um, that's a great question. Uh, the experience is a bit surreal and it's one of those things that like I lived in, in New York city for nine years and I was a babysitter for so long, but I felt like I didn't really make sense of that experience until I took myself out and and took a year in Arkansas. And all of those experiences kind of made 
more sense to me when I stepped away. So I'll probably Mm. have more information on what's happening now in a few months. But I will say that one of the surprising and wonderful parts is the messages that I get from a lot of Black women saying, you know, I read all the time and I've never read a Black protagonist before. And and I didn't realize it until till now. Or uh, when I was in the process of finding an agent, I did have some say to me, you know, we may need to pull back on the slang language that you use. Mm. And that was one area that I, it was a hard, I, you know, you wanted to have the best book you can have, but I wanted to keep my dialogue from, you know, young African-American girls to white toddlers to, you know, different friends. I wanted to keep it all extremely hyper real. And so now on the other side, hearing women at every reading say, these people talk like my, me and my friends talk. That mm-hmm. so wonderful. And to know, like the first goal is always just to have a grouping story, but to have people see themselves in this novel has been really lovely. So that's been a good part. Well, and I think even just um, using code switching mm-hmm. in the book as a matter of daily course without, you know, saying this is code switching. Yeah. I, I love It's honest, right? I mean, this is representation of a real world, a diverse world. And I think that, um, of course, everyone should have the opportunity to see themselves on the page. And I, I love that, you know, you stuck to your guns and you're like, no, I mean, we're gonna, we're gonna keep this the way that it is, which honestly, your readers are going to react to that. Um, and lovely that the black women that are reading it, can say, oh, this is great. I identify with this. But I also think it's wonderful that a white woman such as myself could read this and be like, okay, I, I don't identify with the slang and the mm-hmm. conversations that are going on here, but it's good for me to be exposed to it and I can appreciate it. Absolutely. That's my, I mean, that's like one of the like main reasons that I read is I just want to see into other, another world. And so there's so many times where I say, oh my gosh, this is so different or oh, oh this is exactly like what I do. Mm-hmm. And that's just part of, you know, being a reader and a writer. And so that's been really lovely. Um, I think that I had to realize that people are bringing in all of their own stuff to my book and they're carrying a lot of experiences and sometimes prejudices and, and mm-hmm. feelings of, or even just like, you know, not feeling well that day, all of those things are bringing into the reading experience. And so knowing that all I can do is just tell my version of the truth. My professor, Paul Harding in grad school just said over and over, your job as a fiction writer is to tell the truth. And so that's always mm. my goal. And I'm, I'm glad I've been so thrilled that people are enjoying it so far. And I love the quote there from your professor. I am a librarian in my day life. I don't work full time, but as I said, you can tell I'm in the school today. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, one of the easy ways that we break down the difference between nonfiction and fiction when we're talking to younger children is we say, well, nonfiction is true. And Mm -hmm. the older I get, I'm just like, you know, I don't like saying that to oh, that's interesting. the kids. Yeah. Because then the flip side of that, you know, and is that the fiction is false. Like it's not, it is true representation. Right. It's the people may not exist and be real people, but you know, they are, that person is out there in the world. So um, I've just kind of been redefining to myself as a writer and as a librarian and someone educating children, it's like is saying nonfiction is true, degrading or misrepresenting mm-hmm. fiction in some ways to these young minds. That's interesting. And I don't know if it, it, who knows if it could be, especially because when I think about my process, it's mostly reading nonfiction to mm-hmm. 
become inspired for my fiction. I think that the more true elements that I can insert into my fiction, the better it is. And, and the characters that aren't real will seem even more real. Um, and I think that fiction can often do this really special thing that the essay or the think piece can't do, where it just makes you so entranced by a person who doesn't exist, but it makes you see the world you live in in a different way often. So yeah, we might need to redefine that for children. I don't know. Last thing, why don't you tell listeners where they can find you online and where they can find your book, Such a Fun Age? Absolutely. Uh, Such a Fun Age is available uh, pretty much, I think, where all books are sold for the most part. Um, I can be found on KylieReed.com, and that's also where you can order the book. Twitter is not my thing. It goes a little (laughs) bit too fast for me, but I am available on Instagram at at KylieReed. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar.